as we dive into our passage today, I want to share with you something that uh, is, a, is a challenge for me. When I think about Kristen and Gabriel, I love my children, but there was a time when they were a great source of stress in a different way that they are today. They're still a source of stress sometimes. Yes, we are. Yes, you are. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is a great day. That is fantastic. But they were once a source of stress in a different way. I do not handle lack of sleep well. When you have a baby, you'll know you do not get a lot of sleep. They wake up, they need to be fed. And one of the things that got me, I don't know if it got you through it, but what got me through this was having these milestones that I could point to along the way and say, okay, if we can just make it to where, to where they're sleeping through the night, you know, we, we can do this. And you would get to that point. And then, like, you're still having to do all the bottle mixing and all this other stuff. And so slowly I'm like, okay, now if we can just get to solid food. Okay, great. Now if we can just get to speaking and using words. Okay, great. Now if we can just get to, and it seems like that there's always another milestone that you're just waiting for. And I'll tell you, that really helped me to get through it, especially when we had the second one coming. And we had the experience of the first one. She had colic real bad for months. And it's almost like a bad dream. I can't even really remember a lot of it. I think the Lord has blocked it from my mind. Thanks be to God. But we had Gabriel on the way, and one of my thoughts was, okay, we're doing this again. We're doing it again. It's the sleep and the food. It's all happening again. And those milestones really helped to pull us through that. Well, what's interesting is those milestones are all significant. There's a reason that the child wakes up every three or four hours, or sometimes less or more often. It's because they need food, and their body is in hyperdrive, accelerated at growth in those early stages of life. We often talk about how our children are like sponges, they just soak up everything, food, information, bad habits that their parents display. All of it, they soak it all up. Their bodies are designed to do this at this stage of life. However, like right now, my body is not changing a lot. I'm getting more gray hairs. Things are starting to ache more, but I'm not growing like my children grow. They need different nutrients at different times in order to bring about different developmental success in their life. It's the same with us spiritually. God plans very specific times of growth and nutrition for us. And the chief cause, the chief source of that nutrition is God's Word. In our passage today, we see a little glimpse into this idea as he begins to speak about infants and milk. What we're going to see today, this is a main idea we can write down, is that God plans exactly what we need. Oh, praise the Lord. God gives us exactly what we need. Isn't that, isn't that providential? God gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, so that we might grow exactly as he plans it. That's what we're going to see today in our passage. I know you're going to be caught writing that down for about 10 minutes. I'm going to interrupt your writing so that we can read through our passage this morning. 
Hopefully, uh, you have got your Bible open to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For those of you that are turning there now, I'm going to go ahead and invite everyone to stand for the reading of God's Word as you flip to that passage. This is just a reminder that what we're about to read are not the words of any human being, but the divinely inspired Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you were not ready, for you were still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please illuminate your word to us this morning? Would you guide me, the proclaimer of your word, protect me from error, and use these words to change us into the image of Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A brief recap where we're at in the passage. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about the first of several issues to this church. He says, I've noticed that there is division among you. This is not good. And then he begins to talk about a little more in detail why it is that that problem is here. What's so bad about this problem? How is it that we can start to work towards a solution to the problem? And then as we get into chapter 3, really he starts to get into what is the root cause of that problem? Because ultimately, the division itself is a problem, but it's primarily a symptom. It's a sign of something deeper within. So as Paul approaches the root cause of that, he's explaining the problem. He's explaining why it is that some people can see it, why it is that some people can't. There is a spiritual realm and a spiritual wisdom that the unspiritual mind cannot comprehend. So then as Paul goes into chapter 3 here, he circles back around to what he started in chapter 1, Verse 12, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He's saying this is not good. Well, now in chapter 3, he circles back around in verse 4. As we look back to verse 1 here, to get started, he uses this analogy. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, this is a real bittersweet kind of statement. On the one hand, the sweetness of this is that he references them as brothers, as infants in Christ. What does this mean? It means that because of their sinfulness, they are not ripped apart from Christ. They are still of the faith. This ought to be an encouragement to us. When we stumble and we make mistakes, which will happen, look at this morning. 
Things are going to go in a way that you did not plan them. That does not mean, according to Paul here, and division is significant, but Paul still addresses them as brothers. That word there can also be translated brothers and sisters. Essentially, he's saying, you're still family. The division is not good, but you are still family. Now, here's the bitter part of this opening sentence. I could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. It is good to be an infant in Christ. It is not good to be an infant in Christ when you ought to be an adult in Christ. And that's the point that he's making here. If you think about the history of this church, you can go back and look at Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth, and he spends a year and a half there, 18 months He spends teaching them. He goes away, and then Apollos comes in in chapter 19, and he begins to teach the church. And so that's where we see these teachers mentioned by name, Paul and Apollos. It's very possible, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, that several of the Corinthians also at some point sat under the teaching of Peter. And some of them possibly, some commentators suggest, even being able to sit under the teaching of Christ before he died. And they are all in this church, and at this point, a year and a half under Paul's teaching. Time under Apollos' teaching, Peter's teaching, Jesus' teaching. They should have been mature. They should be past the infant stage, but they weren't. Christian maturity is not a matter of intellect or knowledge. It's not a matter of age. Christian maturity is reflected in something a little bit deeper. I want to move into verses 2 through 4 before we fully unpack what that is. How does he describe their nourishment as infants in Christ? Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you were not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I want you to flip forward in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read a couple of passages here. Hebrews chapter 5, and you can go down to verse 12. Here, the author of Hebrews, we don't know with confidence who it is, though several scholars and commentators have offered their suggestions. It's really difficult to know for sure. But the author of Hebrews is explaining Jesus as the great high priest. He's talking about how Jesus is a fulfillment of the office of Melchizedek, this eternal priest that has no beginning and no end. He just kind of pops up in Scripture and then he disappears. We've talked about this before. And so the author is explaining this, and then in verse 11 he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here, there's a similar idea. By this time, you don't need to be the ones being taught. You ought to be the ones teaching. You ought to have matured in your faith to the point where you are now relaying the basic principles of the oracles of God. But instead, you need someone in verse 12 to teach you these things again. He says this to their shame. You need milk, not solid food. The preferential source of nourishment is solid food. I don't want my children at this stage in their development to be going back to a bottle. They don't need that. They need vegetables. They need meat. They need grain. They need solid food. Imagine what it would do to our development if we just stayed on milk our entire lives. It would not be good. You need milk, not solid food. And then it describes this in verse 13. What is it to be immature and to live on milk? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Contrasted with that in verse 14, solid food is for the mature. How does it describe the mature? Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in this passage, the idea behind growth, a fully mature Christian is not one who just knows the word of righteousness. But that word of righteousness takes a role in their life as they are practicing it. They are training their discernment by doing the good things and not doing the bad things. Moving from milk to solid food is moving from living in the flesh to living according to the word of God. That's maturity. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the book of James chapter 3, I was talking about how Jesus is our wisdom and in James chapter 3, I referenced verse 13. I'm going to go ahead and read this whole paragraph for us as we think about what it is to be wise and mature. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Those are strong words. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, do not boast. Your wisdom is unspiritual, earthly, and demonic. That is harsh. 
What is it to be wise then, James? It is to be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. Isn't it interesting that the book of Proverbs, and I've mentioned this before, I know, but I need to say it again. To be wise is not just to know what the book of Proverbs says, is it? The wise man is the one who does these things. So now as we come back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is exactly what we see Paul talking about here. I fed you with milk, not yet solid food, for you weren't ready for it, and even now you were not ready for it. How do I know that? Because you're still immature. How do I know that? For you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? How do I know you're immature? Because you're acting immature. You're doing the things that fleshly people do. I see this division among you, this jealousy and this strife. This is not wisdom. You claim to be wise because you're dividing these teachers like you are sitting in judgment over them. But what you're actually displaying is a world type of wisdom. Not the spirit type of wisdom. Your wisdom, is uns- in the words of James, is unspiritual, earthly, demonic. It is not how God uses wisdom. And that leads us to our first point this morning if you're taking notes. As spiritual wisdom comes from the Spirit, unspiritual wisdom comes from the flesh. As spiritual wisdom comes from the Spirit, unspiritual wisdom comes from the flesh. The Corinthian church is being driven more by their fleshly desires than they are by the Spirit of God. It is possible, as we think about what it means to be spiritual, there are two dimensions that one commentator specifically used. There is a positional spirituality, and then there's a practical spirituality. Here's what this means. Positional means, where do I stand in front of God? What is my state before God? Am I spiritual in His eyes? That is to be a believer, born again. In that sense, all Christians are spiritual. But then there's this practical spirituality. This has to do with my practice of that spirituality. My practice of godly wisdom. Positional is, I've received it, I've responded, I'm in, so to speak. Practical is, I'm living according to what God has already called me. Christians, non-Christians, cannot be either positionally spiritual or practically spiritual. They can't be spiritual at all. That's what he mentions in chapter 2. All of these things cannot be understood by those who are unspiritual because they are spiritually discerned. Christians, however, will always be positionally spiritual, but they will not always be practically spiritual. We have these times when we begin to revert back to the patterns of our flesh. Colossians chapter 3 is a great example. Put to death these things that are earthly in you and put on Christ. So spiritual wisdom and maturity implicitly comes through the Spirit, 
where unspiritual wisdom and implicitly immaturity comes through the flesh. Many churches fail to examine themselves in light of God's definition of wisdom. We think, well, I've been a Christian for this much time. I know this much of the Bible. And I'll tell you what I found in my life. The longer I'm a Christian, the more desperately I realize I need Christ. For my, for my experience, the longer I spend as a Christian the more I realize I really don't know. The better I know the Bible, the worse I realize I actually know the Bible. I can remember thinking, I'm just going to read the Bible, I'll know it all, and I'll just keep reading it over and over and just kind of reaffirming and reestablishing what I've already learned. And as I do this, what I'm learning is, as I read back through the Bible, I missed so much last time. How did I miss that? And then I get through it again, and then I go back again, and I start to go through, and you know what I find out? I missed so much last time. How did I miss that? It's a lifelong pursuit. My maturity is not in how much I know about the Bible, though. It's am I living this? Or am I making undercutting comments about people? And displaying my unspiritual wisdom? Am I pursuing peace and unity? Am I looking for ways to show love to my brother and sister? Or am I looking at ways at tearing them down? That is what wisdom is. And you know what's interesting about this? We're going to get into it in a moment. I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead momentarily. What's interesting about this is that we often are the least equipped to see when we are living in an immature way. It's like with my kids. When they say something and I think, well, that's really immature. And you point it out to them, they can't see it in the moment. But later when you sit down and talk with them and say, why did you do this? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? We do the same thing. So we have to make sure that we are not being led by our flesh. Well, then what is the right way? Move on to verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So Paul begins to unpack now exactly what it is that they need to understand that their flesh is causing them to think about incorrectly. In their flesh, they're thinking the success of the church depends on the ability of the leader in that moment. But look at how he describes these servants. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants. We might be led to ask at this moment, whose servants? They're God's servants. They belong to the Lord. If you look down in verse 8, this is the key part of the whole paragraph as it relates to Paul's argument. Apollos and Paul, he who plants, he who waters, whatever they do, 
They are one. That means that God has said, here's everything that needs to be done. So now I'm going to place you here, and you here, and you here. You're going to be here. You're going to be here. Now I want all of you to fulfill your role, and then we're going to see this thing accomplished. It is one unified movement. It's just like whenever you turn a vehicle on and you open the hood. There's one engine, but there are so many different components that are all operating in unison. We can't look at those different components and say, oh, that's the best one, because if you took any of them out, it would all break down. What Paul is saying is you shouldn't be having division because really the teachers are all one. They're workers of God. They all play a vital role. You're showing your immaturity in the way that you divide over something that is unified. It's equivalent to saying, well, I like God the Father the best. Well, I like God the Son the best. Well, I like God the Holy Spirit the best. There's only one God. There are three persons, but it is one unified God, the Trinity. In the same way that it's absurd to divide over the members of the Trinity, he's saying it's absurd that you would divide over God's servants. Why is it? Continue looking in verse 5. Through these servants you believed, listen to this phrase, as the Lord assigned to each. If we keep reading, I planted, Apollos watered, now listen to this, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you see it? You can almost understand why it is that the Corinthians are struggling with this temptation to divide over teachers. You have Paul come in, and he's described as the planter in verse 6. I planted. So Paul comes in for a year and a half, and he's planting, and he's planting, and he's planting, and planting, and planting, and planting, and we're not seeing a lot of growth. And when I say growth, I mean plants coming up out of the ground. We're not seeing these plants come up while Paul is there. He's there for a year and a half, planting, planting, planting. He leaves, and now Apollos comes in. And Apollos' job is different. Apollos is not a planter. He's a waterer. So he comes in and he waters, 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 waters. And as he's watering, suddenly these crops are coming up out of the ground. And now sit back in the Corinthian seat. And you can say, oh, wow, look, Apollos had it right and Paul had it wrong. If, if Paul had been doing it right, we'd have seen all these plants. It makes sense. I get it. I get the temptation to, to make this division and to sit in judgment over these teachers. But here's what God says in his word. The crop that was produced is only, in verse 5, as the Lord assigned to each. God has assigned certain tasks to certain individuals. You're going to be a planter. You're going to be a waterer. You're going to fertilize. You're going to prune. You know what? In this congregation, you're actually going to serve these roles, multiple roles, and then you're going to come in and you're going to do this, and it's all according to God's plan. It is God who gives the growth, which leads to our second point this morning. 
as the success of the flesh comes from man, spiritual success comes from God. Success in the flesh, I look at my job, how is it that I was so successful? Well, I trained, I studied, I practiced, I developed muscle memory, I learned how things work, I I surpassed my teachers, I read the textbooks, and then I got in my job and experience filled in the gaps that they failed to address. That's how I was successful. Who gets the credit for that? Me. But in the church and in the Christian life, it's much different. Success is not all dependent upon you, but it comes from God as God gives the growth. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 4. They're not maturing because they are trying to do these things in their own power when they need to be trusting the Lord to work His Word through them, producing maturity. In either set of verses, the growth comes from God. So, he continues in verse 8. He says that he who plants, he who waters implicitly any other leader or teacher in the church, are one. Well, what are they responsible for then? He says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Very important here. From the perspective of a Christian leader in 1 Corinthians writing, as he understands his task and responsibility, he doesn't get paid by the Lord, his wages, that's the analogy, he doesn't get paid based on how many crops are produced. Look in the verse. What does he get paid for? He gets paid, his wages are according to his labor. It's almost like God is saying, Paul, stop watering. I've got someone coming to water. You just keep planting the seed because I really want you to be over to this point before Apollos gets here. Does that make sense? The job of the leader is not to plan the work of the business and cause success. That's like going into a factory and you see this factory line worker and these parts are coming down and he grabs this part, grabs it, clicks it together, puts it down. Grabs, grabs, clicks, put it down. And he's just doing this the whole time and then he suddenly decides, you know what? I'm not making any of these toys. I want to go do that other part. And he puts his stuff down and starts to go over and work on something else. And then you've got this factory worker up top who's in charge of overseeing everything. What do you think he's going to do? Do you think he's going to say, great initiative. Thank you for going so that you can get credit for putting some toys together. Wonderful. No, he's not going to say that, is he? What's he going to say? Whoa, 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 whoa. I pay you to man that spot. That's your job. This is the work that I have planned for you. And when everyone is doing their role perfectly, God is working through that mechanism in order to bring about growth in his own field, in his own building. The task of the leaders is to be faithful and to trust God with the growth. As we close out this morning, what relevance does this have with us outside the church? First of all, when we are saved as Christians, we are saved into a church. The church. The invisible, universal church. When you give your life to Christ, you are now a member by adoption of a new family. 
you're joining a local church needs to be an expression of your adoption into a spiritual church. It's vital. Many people say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's like saying, I don't have to live in my house with my family to be married to my wife and father to my children. Technically, I don't have to, but do you think I'm going to sleep outside every day and never go in my house? No, I'm going to go in my house. Why? That's where my family is. Christians need to have their life intimately woven into the life of a church. So in that sense, it applies to our life already, but I'm going to give you another application. As we are speaking, seeking to grow in Christ and in our spirituality, we need to remember that it's not just how much you know that leads to your maturity. It's not just your ability to come in and take the notes off the screen and check the box and say, well, I listened, I took notes, I'm done. The true mark of maturity says, okay, here's what God's Word says. How am I not living this way in my life? Why is it that I keep wanting to do this other thing instead of doing this? God, how is it that you want to take this and produce something in my life? You will not be able to bring growth in your own power. You must rely upon the Lord. We often want to look ahead and say, okay, well, these are the things that need to be done, and I'm going to make sure to do these things, and we forget that God is the one who gives the growth. If we would get our eyes off of everything else that we think is causing all these problems and recenter it back in and say, God, what do you say is the problem? Why is it that I'm not seeing in my life what I want to see right now? The simple answer is, God has not given it to you yet. That's easy to understand, but it's hard to accept. God has not given it yet. Well, why? I can't tell you that, unfortunately. I can guess. It's different for each of us. It's different for us as a church. It's different for us as individuals. The point is that we need to get our eyes off of these improper measures of success. One area that I see this as I wrap up is both within and without the church. This idea of crop comparison. We think, oh, well, our success is measured by how much crop we have at this given moment. And then what happens is we suddenly start to have this idea that, well, I don't know if I want to partner with other churches in these things, because what if they get credit for the crops that we should be getting credit for? What if they get more influence? I was a part of a church once that partnered with another major church in the city. We got together for this event. The aftermath of this event was further division between the two churches. There were hurt feelings because one church got more time on the stage than the other church did. We are focusing on the wrong things. Your job, my job, all of our job, our church's job in this community is to be faithful. If we will do what God has commanded us to do in his word, he will give us the growth when we are ready for it. He will not give it to us a moment sooner. 
So, are we seeking the Lord, His wisdom, according to His word? Are we trusting Him to do the work that only He can do? And are we eagerly anticipating the growth when He says we are ready for it? Let us pray. Lord, I thank You for Your word. I thank You that in our lives, spiritually, Lord, that You do not leave us alone in our sin, As we try to atone for our own sin and the things that we do, we are living according to the flesh. And I thank you, God, that you have shown us that we cannot save ourselves. That we cannot save ourselves because we are the ones who need to be saved. Forgive us for thinking that we can do the right things in order to please you and possibly earn a seat with you at the table in eternity. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us that we desperately need you. To show us that we cannot cause ourselves to grow, but that that only comes through Christ. Lord, if there is a soul in this building today that has not yet come to understand this freeing, marvelous truth, would you please so speak to that individual? Reveal to them, Lord, your love for them their inability to please you apart from Jesus Christ, that they might turn from their sin and cling to you desperately, that they might find in you the ultimate satisfaction for their soul. Lord, for the rest of us, would you help us shift our mindset towards faithfulness? Would you teach us to pay attention to how you've designed us so that we might fulfill the function that you have designed us for? That we might not try to fulfill some other function because we think that that's the secret to success, but that you might remind us that you, God, are the secret to success. Lord, we confess that we do not fully understand everything that you do or why you do it. We thank you that we don't have to know those things. That you will give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. That we might grow in exactly the way you want us to. Teach us to be faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.